Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this week by Squarespace and Simple Contacts. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello. Hey, Jason. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? Uh, good. Cold. We were talking before. We have the, the very rare uh, snowstorm going on in Memphis, so it's uh, it's very exciting here. Snow and ice, things that we don't yeah. normally get this far south. Yeah, I don't understand these concepts at all, but um, you don't really either, so it's, it's wild, wild stuff. Well, it's, it's apparently, this is a segue, get ready for it, oh. it's apparently not too cold in Florida so that they can do space things this week. <laughs> yeah, so we spoke last time about the Falcon Heavy being uh, being at the pad. A static fire of that, that rocket, so, you know, they, they leave it clamped down, but, but light all the engines to make sure everything works. Right. That should be this week. The last couple of days, it's been like, is it going to be today? And then it's not today, maybe tomorrow. So at some point, hopefully this week, we will see that again leading up to a launch that should be this month, um, but still kind of in that that holding period. Yeah, but it's a uh, it's going to be if it goes off, it's like what the biggest uh, rocket that currently in service once it goes mm-hmm. in service. And yeah. as we've said before, Elon Musk is trying to downplay expectations for it because of you know probably good reasons of that it's the first time firing the thing off, and who knows what will happen. But uh, that'll be something to see. Uh, it definitely will be. So we will uh, we'll stay tuned for that static fire and then and then the yeah. launch. There is some uh, less good SpaceX news right now. Yeah, the uh, delays continue for SpaceX's uh, attempts to do commercial crew, which is taking human beings for the first time on a SpaceX rocket to the International Space Station. Um, NASA announced that they are delaying the SpaceX commercial crew test flights. It sounds like there's more certification and testing that needs to be done before they approve it. Um, the idea there is to do a test firing of the commercial crew vehicle without people in it and then a crewed mission. And those have been pushed back four months. So now they're saying August will be when they do the test and December will be the launch, which means we are perilously close to... SpaceX's commercial crew falling into 2019. Mm-hmm. Just keeps on slipping. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about 2011 and going to the last shuttle launch and how they were saying, oh, well, you know, we'll have commercial crew in four years or whatever. It's like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> Not gonna, even... going to be eight, at yeah. least. <laughs> yeah, at least. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, they've got to get it right. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you can't have you can't have an accident when you've got... got people involved as we're going to talk about later the show that that's yeah. a horrific thing um but at the same time it would be it would be good to see some progress there yeah and we should mention also since uh, people sometimes say we're mean to spacex and sometimes say we're too nice to spacex that the last time i checked boeing is still planning on doing its commercial crew this year as well with the starliner um but it's unclear I think, I don't know whether those schedules have changed at all, but that is also out there. Yeah. Yeah, it's, SpaceX is not the only game in town for this. While we're talking about SpaceX, let's talk about this this super weird mission. So the uh, the Zuma, it's a classified satellite for, I'm quoting, an unknown government agency. So it's a satellite that, that 
no one outside of various wanted people have seen. People, we don't know what it does. We don't know what government agency paid for it. We don't know what orbit it's in. We don't know what it's looking at. So just, it's sort of, that's weird, right? Like, I feel sort of creeped out by this in a way that's not completely rational. It's very strange, right? Very strange. Yeah, yeah, it's this... Well, I mean, so we have a news story here, and then we have the conspiracy theory yes, thing. Yes, always fun Cause to it, mix those. Because it's secret. Secrecy, <laughs> look, um, wherever there is secrecy, conspiracy theories will rush in to, to fill the, the vacuum, right? So, True. So uh, SpaceX, Falcon 9 launch, um, successful first stage, successful second stage, says SpaceX. First stage return is successful. Um. The Zuma has an object in the catalog, which apparently is this thing where you can put it, your your orbiting object in the catalog, but the the secret stuff doesn't get like a an orbit path or whatever else. People have seen the reentry of the second stage of the SpaceX over Africa, but that was where it was expected to be. So there's this great mystery of like th- nobody will say that they lost the satellite. SpaceX says everything that it did worked fine. Mm-hmm. There's some speculation that this, whatever this was, this payload had a separate uh, like connector to the second stage of the Falcon 9 that was made by the um, government agency instead of SpaceX. And therefore, if it failed to release the satellite, that's not SpaceX's duty and that's why spacex is claiming success um but of course the people involved in this thing are not um talking so it leads to speculation that it did stay attached to the second stage and burned up it but then you know the entry suggests in the in the database suggests it did at least do one orbit as on its own so did it actually to get deployed and there was something that went wrong or because this is all mysterious, is that just what they want you to think? Mm. Which is my favorite idea. Is like, yeah. oh yes, we launched a thing that did not work, and now we do not have a satellite in space doing things. It's a shame. And then, yeah, it's totally working in the background. I don't know. No one knows. I will. I know there are people out there wondering right now, listening to us talk about this, and I would like to set the record straight that Relay FM and Liftoff Podcast, this is not... Our satellite. I know you may be thinking. Oh, interesting. Steve and Jason are covering this because it's their satellite. It's not our satellite. So you just just put put down the emails. It's not it's not ours. Also, probably not aliens. Probably not. It may just be dust. So that, that's our next item. Everyone's favorite star. KIC eight four six two eight five two. Tabby Remember star. Remember this? Yeah, this story uh, all last year where. There's something transiting this star, but it's it's not predictable. It's not repeatable like you would expect seeing an uh, an exoplanet circling a star, right? Where you can very accurately predict when the next dip will be. People, of course, went crazy thinking this was some sort of alien megastructure being built around the sun, around the star to harvest its energy. Turns out, the, the thought is now... That it's uh, dust and debris. So maybe there was a planetary collision near this star or something something happened to a body and there's lots of dust and debris. And that would 
explain the the fluctuations. Some of those fluctuations are really steep, by the way, like yeah. dimming like up to twenty percent at times. So maybe there's large pieces of debris and dust, and it's it's a big mess. So that's the current idea. We've got to talk about this Kickstarter, though. <laughs> there was uh, a campaign raised a hundred thousand dollars to fund observations of this star, and so. Um, telescopes are all pointed at this thing. Uh, four of these big light dips were observed during this time period. Uh, there's still a lot of analysis of that data that needs to be done, but the early analysis is what points to um, that this is most likely dust. So the, the whatever's blocking the light is not fully opaque. That there's right. some some light creeping through. It's all very unusual, but it seems that- like the alien megastructure theory is put to rest yeah they're the, what they're that's the that's the key thing here i think is the idea that it's <laughs> it's um they see enough light that it can't be explained as being like covered by something that is solid so this is again you know you want to go with the most reasonable answer this seems like it's an awful lot of debris right so like you said is this a yeah, a planetary, a disk of material that was a planet or will be a planet. Is it a huge amount of like dust and cometary stuff like that, that maybe some stars have way thicker um, dust around them or that this one's unusual and that it's got a dust disk that's kind of edge on so that we see it from Earth? Unclear, still really cool that it's such an unusual thing that we're seeing, but, mm-hmm. you know, probably not aliens. Probably, probably not. Who knows? But probably not. Do you want to tell us about uh, John Young? Yeah. So um, we we were talking about Gemini on the show lately, and we're going to move into po- Apollo today. And one of the astronauts in the Gemini program who's come up a couple of times is John Young, who I said at one point, and we are going to do this sometime, Stephen, it's going to happen, would be my top pick in an astronaut draft. Mm-hmm. Because solid first of his, pick. I, I mean, Neil Armstrong is a pretty good choice. Yuri Gagarin would be a great choice. Um, but John Glenn, Alexei Leonov, there are lots, lots of good choices out there. But for my money, John Young deserves a special consideration because of the amazing career that he had at NASA. He was at NASA for 45 years and he did stuff that no other astronaut did. And um, he passed away. Uh, since our last show we passed away early in 2018 and so i wanted to to do a little walkthrough of just how remarkable john young's career is consider this my um initial application to pick him first in the astronaut draft so Hmm. he was on gemini 3 which uh for people who remember that episode he was on there with gus grissom and famously smuggled on a sandwich yes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with, which he got in trouble like corned beef on rye or whatever he got in trouble for that because the crumbs in the circuitry probably not the greatest thing but you know what it was okay because he got another mission he was on gemini 10 that was the one where they rendezvoused with two agenas which we know now not the easiest thing to do to rendezvous with. <laughs> no that is a heck of an achievement yeah so he did that twice so all right he's a gemini astronaut that's impressive what could make him more impressive than, than being one of the, the new nine and one of the Gemini astronauts? Well, he was also an Apollo astronaut. He flew on Apollo 10. Um, Apollo 10, again, bad luck for the people on Apollo 10 in a way because that was the mission before the, uh, the, the, the first lunar landing. And we will when we do our episode about Apollo 10 next year, um, 
the talk about the um, being so close to something and not getting there. Apollo 10 went into orbit around the moon. They detached the lunar module as if to land, drove it around, and then came back up and went home and didn't mm-hmm. land because that was the mission. Although if you talk to the people in the LEM, they said, you know, we could just take this thing down right now. <laughs> No, don't do that. Um, Anyway, John Young was in the command module for that mission. So he was, he stayed home in the command module while the other two astronauts um, tooled around a little bit in the LEM in lunar orbit, which was the last thing to test before they made the landing in Apollo 11. So that's pretty cool. Been around the moon. Nice. Add to his resume. But wait, there's more. Apollo 16. He landed on the moon. He was the ninth person to walk on the moon. He made three separate moonwalks on Apollo 16. So um, two visits to the moon, one in which he got to land and get out and walk around. Okay, so now we've got a legitimate, he is in the limited class of people who walked on the moon. He was not only a Gemini astronaut, but walked on the moon. This is a very small collection of people he's now in. Okay, good. Not not yet. We're not done. 1974, he was made the chief of the astronaut office. So he was basically the head astronaut in 1974. He was, along with Robert Crippen, one of the two people who piloted the first space shuttle launch, which is where I first heard the name John Young. And Young and Crippen, um, that that was a spacecraft that launched having never been tested. Mm-hmm. essentially as a, as a complete unit they never fired it off without people on it which means they never they never fired it off um with the shuttle engines which are the main engines um we we focus on the solid rocket boosters but like the main engines are the shuttle engines and that shuttle they tested all the parts right but that they had never put that whole stack together and launched it and young crippen climbed in and they flew it it's incredible. It's an incredible story. So that's that's a Hall of Fame kind of mo- move on its own, and it's come after his two Apollo missions and his two Gemini missions. And he flew once more. He flew the Space Lab mission, SCS nine, where they they had a module called Space Lab that fit in the cargo bay, and it like basically was another area where people could do scientific work. Before there was an International Space Station, the idea was you could do something like Space Lab, where you fill the shuttle cargo bay with a lab module, and you could do some semi extended, you know, for a week or a few days. Um, experiments. So that was the Space Lab mission in STS-9. Then the Challenger accident happened. That was his last mission in space. He became a, uh, a critic of NASA management and, and the uh, safety uh, that, was, that was not appropriate for crewed missions in that point mm-hmm. um, after in the, in the wake of Challenger. Um, story goes that he was reassigned into an engineering operations and safety job from the astronaut office. It is NASA denies this, but it is generally thought by everybody else who worked with him that that was a reprisal for his criticism of NASA management. Yeah. Um, And yet he stayed with NASA in the 90s, was assigned to the role as associate director of Johnson Space Center and retired in 2004. So unlike so many of the astronauts from those early days, he was a NASA lifer. He was there until 2004 when he retired. Um, And he has a memoir that you can read if you're interested in this kind of amazing career. I have not read it. I am going to check it out. It's called Forever Young. (laughs) And uh, it is, um, I, I saw it described as one of the, because he wrote it, 
in the 2000s. It is one of the latest um, memoirs of the early astronauts, which is kind of an interesting thing that he has this whole career, this huge career to look back on. So he's yeah. a he he passed away this month, and in my mind is like at the top of the list of of the great astronauts, given how many different things that he was uh, he was doing. Yeah, the book's great. I read it uh, a couple of years ago, and yeah, I mean this, you know, you look through this this history of his career and. Very, very few people span the years he did NASA, like you said. But to fly on three different programs is uh, a pretty elite class. So he's um, a true. Uh, I think. Uh, I think it's even in the description of the book on Amazon. But he, he was sort of regarded as an astronaut's astronaut. He was, you know, sort of the embodiment of NASA for a long time. And it's it's uh, it's a big loss. Yeah, he's a good one. Absolutely. Uh, so today we are going to talk about Apollo 1, uh, Jason, but first you want to tell us about our first sponsor? Sure, Stephen. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Enter code LIFTOFF at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea, whatever it is. You can get a unique domain. You can use Squarespace's award-winning templates and more. Maybe you want to create an online store, sell some of the stuff you're making, sell cool stuff that you found. I don't even know what it would be. You can sell stuff. Uh, No extra, you know, weird sort of store thing required. It's all just thrown into Squarespace. You, You get an online store if you want. You also, if you're showing off things you've made with a portfolio, you can do that on Squarespace. You can create a blog, you can create a podcast, whatever you can think of. You basically can create it and put it on the web with Squarespace. That's because Squarespace is an all-in-one platform. There's nothing to install. You're not going to be running a server and installing patches for security reasons and all those things. That all happens behind the scenes. Squarespace takes care of it. You don't have to do the upgrades and reboot the server or anything like that. They've got it covered. If you have issues with your use of Squarespace, they have support available 24-7, and it's award-winning. So uh, they will give you great support. If you do need any help, you can quickly and easily grab a domain name for whatever project you're working on. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed. So you don't have to be a web designer. You can show off your great ideas in beautiful templates designed by Squarespace. Plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. And when you do decide to sign up, use the offer code LIFTOFF for 10% off your first purchase, and that will show your support of Liftoff. Thank you to Squarespace for supporting this podcast and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. All right, so we're continuing our series of NASA's crewed uh, space programs. We're going to talk about the Apollo 1 disaster today, which um, here in a couple of weeks uh, will be celebrating its uh, anniversary. Uh, next time we're going to get to Apollo 4, 5, and 6, um, we kind of wanted to treat uh, Apollo One as its own as its own thing today. Yeah, and there's a lot here to consider. Apollo One is what we call it, but you know it was never really meant to be remembered. It was never really uh, called that before the accident happened. Um, it was chosen to honor the three men killed in the early tests by giving it the name Apollo One. Um, it was originally called AS Two Hundred Four. It was just a mission to test uh, the Apollo Command and Service Module. Um, it was a Block 1 variant, meaning it couldn't dock with the Lunar Module. It was just meant to be the first crewed test of the Service Module and the Command Module. Yeah. 
Um, and I'll say, too, before we get too far into this, there is an excellent article on Scientific American. I've got it in the show notes that really gets into this. Um, I read a lot of material prepping for this, and this article really stood stood out to me. Um, uh, but let's talk a little bit kind of about uh, about the crew. So the crew was selected by Deke Slayton in January 1966. Mercury and Gemini veteran Gus Grissom was named the command pilot. Gemini 4 veteran Ed White and Roger Chaffee served as well. Um, Chaffee had actually supported Gemini 4 as the mission's Capcom, even though he uh, this would have been his first space flight. Right, so they knew him, and they had some yes. comfort level with him. And that's that's uh, Deke Slayton doing his kind of the magic of picking crews and figuring out how well they'll work together. There's an art to that that I think Deke Slayton had. Um, so... Some people at NASA did have concerns about the command module. Joseph F. Shea, who is the Apollo Spacecraft Program Office Manager, um, memorably portrayed actually in in uh, in From the Earth to the Moon for people who've seen that. That's uh, Kevin Pollack plays Joseph Shea. Um, heard the crew's concerns about flammable material in the spacecraft, and. Um, he ordered that the nylon webbing and Velcro that were discussed that were highly flammable materials be removed, but did not oversee that work directly. It's going to it's gonna unfortunately yeah. um, come back. There's a story uh, that Grissom grabbed a lemon off of a tree in his backyard on his last day at home. When questioned by his wife about it, he said, I'm going to hang it on that spacecraft. Um, in fact, it ended up being hung on the uh, on one of the the mock-ups where they were doing their training. This came after weeks of testing and retesting, and there's a there's a part of the command module called the environmental control unit that had been sent back to the factory to be reworked two separate times. Um, this and other issues weighed on the crew and their ground support teams. In fact, just a few weeks before the accident, backup crew member. Um, and a decorated veteran himself, Wally Sherrod, told Grissom, there's nothing wrong with this ship that I can point to, but it just makes me uncomfortable. Something about it just doesn't ring right. So on January 27th, 1967, the primary crew was to go through what's called a plugs-out test. At I- at, uh, that's, it's not an iPad. At Pad 34, this test was to ensure that the command module operated nominally on internal power being cut off from all the external cables and connectors plugs out as the Saturn 1B uh, or and nor the spacecraft were actually fueled all the explosive bolts were disabled it was believed that the test was completely safe they were going to just sort of routinely test the spacecraft on a routine day at the Cape at 1 p.m. Uh, the crew entered the command module in their pressure suits and were attached to the spacecraft's oxygen and communication systems. The initial testing was just absolutely plagued by communication issues between the capsule, which again is up on the launch pad on top of the 1B. So it's it's on the pad, um, but communicating between it and mission control was extremely difficult. At one point, trying to shout through static and noise, Grissom vented, how are we going to get to the moon if we can't talk between two or three buildings? This frustration, I think, was even amplified further. Uh, Things were delayed after the crew detected a foul odor in their breathing oxygen. No cause of the odor could be found. They sampled the air and looked at some things, but couldn't nail it down. And it's not thought today that the smell and the fire are related, but again, kind of building the case that this spacecraft wasn't ready and there was a lot of frustration uh, in the testing that day. 
So after they put the or- the odor issue to rest, they uh, reinstall the hatch. Um, and now the, the Apollo command module hatch was complicated. It's got three different yeah. parts. There's the uh, inner hatch, which is removable and stays inside the cabin. There's an outer hatch, which is hinged and is part of the heat shield. And there's the outer hatch cover, which is a protective cover used to uh, protect the command module from heating during launch and from launch escape rocket exhaust in the event of an abort. So the the cover is on top of the hinged hatch. And then there's the inner hatch, which stays inside the cabin. Um, The inner and outer hatch were closed for this test. The hatch cover was slightly loose to allow for cables and other equipment to be run into the spacecraft. When they sealed the hatches, the air in the cabin was replaced with pure oxygen at 16.7 PSI. That is 2 PSI higher pressure than atmospheric pressure. So we're going to get to to what happens next, but let me tell you about our second sponsor real quick. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Simple Contacts. It's pretty great when an app takes a tiresome task and makes it fuss-free. And Simple Contacts does this by being the easiest way to renew your contact lens prescription. You can reorder your contacts from anywhere in just minutes. All you need to do is complete their online self-guided vision test. It takes less than five minutes from wherever you are right now. No more doctor's offices, no more waiting rooms. You can order your favorite contacts right from their website or app. Simple Contacts offers all the lens brands you love with options for astigmatism, multifocal lenses, colored lenses, and more. You'll be able to order exactly what you need right from the palm of your hand whenever you want. The vision test is just 20 bucks. For comparison, an appointment without insurance could cost you over 200 Simple Contacts can save you money and time, but we do need to let you know this is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. I've used Simple Contacts. I had a prescription. I opened it up. I went through the vision test. They had the brand of contacts that I wear. I'm kind of picky about that. I found one brand that works for me. They had them. I was able to order, and they were quickly at my doorstep. The vision test on the iPhone was really great, and I sort of had a wow moment that my phone could do this. As a listener of this show, you can save $30 off your order of contact lenses. Just go to simplecontacts.com slash liftoff. Or you can enter the code LIFTOFF at checkout. That's simplecontacts.com slash liftoff. Or again, the code LIFTOFF for $30 off. We thank Simple Contacts for their support of this show and Relay FM. Okay, so back to Apollo 1. This um, The plugs out test is, is entirely meant to mimic a launch. So they got a countdown clock going, but it was held several times because the technicians were struggling to clear up all of those communication issues that had been frustrating Gus Grissom and the rest of the crew earlier, including his microphone. Actually, Grissom's microphone was stuck on. Um, so he, you know, it wasn't uh, voice activated or flipped on. It was just stu- stuck in the on position. Um, and this was all going on and they were running through all of their pre-launch check- checklists. And this is when it all went wrong. Uh, at 6.31 p.m., so five and a half hours after they first entered the capsule, Grissom can be heard yelling, uh, hey, fire. That's followed by two seconds of scuffling sounds, immediately followed by someone, probably Chaffee, but it's hard. It's, this, If you listen to this, it's hard to discern exactly what's going on. Um, but he yells, we've got a fire in the cockpit. After six seconds of silence, one last transmission was made. 
Again, it's difficult to understand the words, but many believe it to be white saying, we've got a bad fire. Let's get out. We're burning up. That's followed by one absolutely heart-stopping scream, and then the line went dead. Yeah, now, um, some witnesses say that White reached for the inner hatch release handle, but it was it was too late um, for it to make any difference. The internal wall of the command module ruptured from the pressure created by the fire, which is being fed by that pure oxygen atmosphere. This rush of air allowed the fire to fill the capsule, The ground crew struggled to reach the hatch due to intense heat and dense smoke. Uh, They had fears that the command module had exploded or soon would, and that the fire may ignite the solid fuel rocket and the launch escape tower above the command module, which would have likely killed nearby ground personnel. So it took about five minutes for the pad workers to open all three of those layers of the hatch, and they couldn't drop the inner hatch to the cabin floor as intended, so they pushed it out of the way to one side. And inside, they discovered that the crew had all been killed. The procedures to investigate accidents that had been put in place after Gemini 8 went into effect immediately. NASA Deputy Administrator Robert Siemens, who had actually written those policies, established the Apollo 204 Review Board. And in our show notes, we have a link. Uh, NASA actually has an HTML site up of that report. You can read through it. The review board was made up of astronauts, spacecraft designers, engineers, and and many others. The board immediately took ownership of all the hardware, software, and records pertaining to the test and the spacecraft itself. Uh, They also reviewed autopsy results, interviewed witnesses, and much more. On April 5th, 1967, they delivered their final report. The primary cause of death for all three astronauts was cardiac arrest caused by high concentrations of carbon monoxide. They, uh, their bodies had third-degree burns, but those occurred after they had already died, the report ruled. The fire was likely caused by several electric arcs inside the capsule, but a single source proved uh, impossible to be found. The fire began near that problematic environmental control unit that we spoke about earlier that had been rebuilt a couple of times. Uh, This faulty wiring ran near a cooling line that had been prone to leaks. Uh, In short, the build quality of the spacecraft um, was a huge issue here, and what Shirah had feared came true. Now, one of the huge complicating factors here is the high pressure that I mentioned earlier and the pure oxygen atmosphere. This uh, oxygen, highly flammable gas, of course, if you don't know, in air, air is only, what, 20-some percent oxygen, and the rest of it is inert nitrogen. And um, pure oxygen, so incredibly flammable. Um, It also made it more difficult to remove the hatch because of the increased pressure. Um, It turned out that NASA had not ever run any fire tests in the pure oxygen environment. It sounds very much like nobody really thought about the fact that um, running a plugs-out test with a pure oxygen atmosphere at high pressure versus what it would be like in space versus what it was like with ground air, had it just had not ever been mm-hmm. considered. And it was one of these gaps that proved fatal for the crew. Um, magnifying this, of course, the other piece, which we also mentioned earlier, the combustible materials throughout the cabin, including the Velcro, um, 
Joseph Shea ordered those materials to be removed. There were concerns about them catching fire. And yet, for some reason, they weren't removed. Lastly, it was found that emergency preparedness had not uh, had been lacking. Management had failed to realize that the test was dangerous, like you said. And the emergency equipment at the pad, so things like uh, breathing masks and um, uh, fire suits, that sort of stuff, simply unable to handle the type of fire that claimed the lives of these three men. Right. They thought it was routine and there was no danger. And as a result, they didn't have the tools there. They couldn't conceive of something like right. this happening. And so when it happened, they didn't have the tools to, to tr- potentially save them. Um, the, fallout, the, uh, the fallout from this accident was widespread. NASA management was confronted with what was known as the Phillips Report, which is a report by the director of the Apollo Man Moon Landing Program, Lieutenant General Samuel Phillips. Phillips and his team found that um, by North American Aviation, the contractor for the command service module and the second stage of the Saturn V had indeed introduced many concerning quality problems in the spacecraft. Phillips reported his findings orally to the NASA brass, so they did not confirm the existence of the work when they were testifying to Congress. Uh, that's not that's not great. The mm-hmm. the committee concluded that the Phillips led team um, what they had found did not have an impact on the likelihood of the Apollo one fire, but because NASA management hadn't disclosed it, um, it looked as if they were attempting to cover up quality and safety issues that they had been fully briefed on, um, but sort of set aside, which is obviously super problematic. Right. This is one of those things that once once an accident like this happens, you start turning over all the rocks and seeing mm-hmm. what's going on. And even things that didn't directly lead to the fire, um, that were still issues where quality things came up and were dismissed, uh, come into view as a pattern. Basically, it's a pattern of behavior of dismissing these things, any one of which could lead to a fatal accident. On the On the program side, Apollo was grounded. And they made extensive changes to the command module after this. The cabin atmosphere at launch was adjusted to 60% oxygen and 40% nitrogen. And at sea level pressure, while all the nylon found on the spacesuits was replaced with a fire-resistant fiberglass material that was coated in Teflon. Uh, at the time of the fire, a redesigned hatch was already in the works. And Jason, you described it as this multi-layer thing uh, that opened inward in, uh, for that inner hatch. The new hatch opened completely outward could be opened in less than five seconds, and all of the wiring and plumbing was coated in protective, self-extinguishing materials. So try to try to bring the the flammable products down in the command module. Right, and this is a this is a case that we've seen again now with uh, accidents at NASA that that there is engineering done to prevent the last accident from happening again. Um, Although uh, you also want cultural changes. And I think I, I think we've mentioned it before on this show that definitely the sense in that mission control interview or mission control documentary, for example, that um, the feeling from the astronauts and the mission control people that had Apollo 1 not happened and caused NASA to really reconsider how it was approaching building this hardware and testing it and thinking about safety that a lot of people in the program are convinced that something else terrible would have Mm -hmm. happened later. It was that, that this is what got them to change their approach to the case where they didn't lose another Apollo astronaut after this. Um, 
As I mentioned at the beginning, by the way, we call this Apollo 1 today. That's because the astronauts' widows asked that NASA designate this as Apollo 1 for um, since their husbands would have taken the first crewed Apollo mission. Um, and everybody agreed with that. So we now think of it as Apollo 1 and that's only right. Um, Gus Grissom and Roger Chaffee were both buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Ed White was buried at West Point on the grounds of the United States Military Academy in New York. President Jimmy Carter awarded the Congressional Space Medal of Honor to Grissom on October 1st, 1978. And President Bill Clinton awarded it to White and Chaffee on December 17th, 1997. An Apollo 1 mission patch was left on the moon's surface after the first crewed lunar landing by Apollo 11. And Apollo 15 left a small statue on the moon, complete with the names of the Apollo 1 astronauts and others, including members of the Russian space program, who had died in the space race. Uh, Finally, the Space Mirror Memorial at Kennedy Space Center bears the name of all three Apollo 1 astronauts. Um, Launch Complex 34 was used for Apollo 7 and then decommissioned. So all that remains is the concrete launch pedestal and a few other small structures. The pedestal bears two plaques commemorating the crew. And as of January 2005, three granite benches were installed on the site at the southern edge of the launch pad. Each bears the name of one of the astronauts and his military service insignia. Crew family members are invited to an annual memorial service. And I think we might have even mentioned Mm -hmm. this in a previous episode, the the photos of of, uh, members of the family and of uh, NASA will go to that location for a memorial every year. So that's um, that's Apollo 1. I think it, it is clearly, the, the accident was clearly a result of a lot of things that had gone wrong in the push to meet the deadline by the end of the decade. You know, quality assurance on the vehicles, uh, safety procedures, and thinking about tests critically had clearly fallen down. The, the fact that no one recognized uh, this sort of test as extremely dangerous and, and moved to stop it or moved to have better emergency preparedness put in place, um, obviously troubling. When we talk about um, NASA and it's, like I mentioned in the Mission Control movie, the idea that they would run tests with all sorts of different failures, and it became a part of NASA's culture to try and envision every possible failure upfront so that everybody could be trained and everything could be dealt with. And you can see in the story of Apollo 1 that this was not really part of the culture, at least not enough for anyone to have had the imagination to consider what they were doing with 100% oxygen on that launch pad with the design of the hatch, with the flammable stuff inside, if there was a spark from something on the inside of that capsule. Nobody conceived of that. That failure of imagination is it, you know is what stands between this being something that was preventable and what actually happened and it sounds by all accounts like this led to a cultural change at NASA to try and anticipate every possibility of what mm-hmm. could go wrong and that is how they managed to go through a whole bunch of really scary moments for the rest of the Apollo program by being incredibly prepared so I think, I think that does it for this week. If you want to read more about Apollo 1 or our other topics, there are links uh, on our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 64. You can get in touch with us there by email, or you can find us on Twitter. Jason is J Snell, and you can find me there as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.